Welcome to Critical Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader PIC community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christophe van Houten and I am joined once again from the other side of the world by David Neuheiser, research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University to continue our conversation on the religious implications of the current precarious life in times of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello David and welcome back. Thanks, Christophe. Considering we mainly discussed some of the negative aspects of the philosophical implications of the religious meanings regarding our peculiar current state of affairs, I think we should not, we should never forget that there is always an other side of the medal as well. And I believe your expertise here is even more precious than uh, before, David. Uh, only last year, as we already mentioned, you uh, did uh, Cambridge University Press publish your very interesting Hope in a Secular Age. So do please give us some insight in your thoughts on the concept of hope and also its evil twin, despair, who are two sentiments that are probably very present in all of us in these times today. Yeah, thanks for the question. I, I think the first thing I should say is probably that I'm not sure that hope is necessarily the positive side, because in my understanding, hope has a kind of negativity that's built into it. There are a number of philosophers from Aristotle to Albert Camus who have argued that hope is actually debilitating, whether personally or politically. Uh, I think there's a common sense among philosophers that hope is often a sort of false comfort. It can make people feel better um, than they should, given their knowledge of the situation. And I think this is a genuine danger. And I think it's actually one that's reflected in many traditions of, of reflection on hope, whether they're theological or philosophical. But the kind of hope that I'm invested in actually has a kind of negativity at its heart. So one of the things that I think is uh, central to, to the sort of hope that I care about is that it entails a really deep uncertainty. So as, as I hear it, to say I hope for something means that the outcome is uncertain. I'm not sure whether it will come to fruition. And in that sense, hope is different than knowledge. It's not a form of security. But in my understanding, hope is a, a discipline or a practice that enables us to persist while acknowledging that uncertainty. It allows us to hold desires that we don't know whether they're going to, um, whether they're going to work out. That's one of the reasons that hope can actually be quite a painful thing because the object of hope by definition is not yet realized. Hope has this kind of desirous stretching out to something that we don't have yet. And for that reason, despair can actually be easier uh, because despair involves letting go of the thing that you want but don't have. But I think this capacity that people have to, to hold that space of uncertainty is really important. And I think it's especially important now. So many of us are feeling quite pointedly I think at the moment that there are many uncertainties that we're confronted with in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. We don't really know how many people have been affected. We don't know what the death rate is in many parts of the world. We don't know when 
social distancing measures will be suspended in places like Australia that have been locked down for a while. There will be an enormous economic impact, but we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. It seems like the crisis is going to have a really huge effect on the societies that we are familiar with, but at the moment, we don't know what that's going to look like. And that's terrifying. So speaking for myself, I, of course, have the anxiety that many of us do that I or people I love will be uh, directly affected. I have um, elderly friends and grandparents and my parents uh, are in the, in the class of people that are especially vulnerable. But more broadly, I worry about what it will mean for our societies if there's a huge financial shock. I worry about the suffering that people who are already disadvantaged are going to experience. And I think in this context, from the response of various politicians, it's, it's actually difficult to hold this space of honest confrontation with the crisis that we're experiencing. So I'm thinking about politicians who in the last week in the US and elsewhere have expressed great confidence that the crisis is about to abate, the economy could come back online with full force soon. There seems to be this desire to assert an optimism, to pretend that things are actually um, going to be fine and that we know that they're going to be fine. I think this is the, this is the type of hope, or I would prefer to say optimism, that philosophers like Camus worry about, that can actually be debilitating and make it harder to confront the situation we're actually in. I think on the other hand, of people like the, um, there was, there were news stories going around a few weeks ago about uh, college students in Florida at the beach on spring break, drinking and playing volleyball and partying. I think there's a kind of despair that's there. That's the sort of flip side of the complacency and optimism of some politicians. I just, I think both approaches try to set the actual situation at arm's length and pretend like it's all going to be fine and that we know that it's going to be fine. I think the alternative to those two approaches is actually a, a hope that acknowledges that we're deeply vulnerable, but, uh, but persists anyway, that sort of holds that space of uncertainty and keeps doing the, the best we can in that context. I think that's especially important because we are going to face a lot of really difficult decisions in the coming months and years. And I think in order to make those decisions well, it's important to squarely face the situation that we're in uh, without, um, without giving in to complacency or despair. And this is the thing that I think hope offers us, which is to acknowledge the disorientation that we feel while pressing, pressing forward anyway. Remaining in, in, in this context of, of fundamental uh, human sentiments like uh, hope and, and despair, uh, there is one more aspect that has, that has been uh, rendered rather uh, very visible in, in this period. The images of dozens and dozens of army trucks carrying the coffins of almost innumerable deceased to the incinerators were shocking to all. Uh, isolated because quarantined, the truly sick almost had no human contact and they still have almost no human contact anymore let alone contact with their loved ones. So once again, the images of people lying on their bellies with their head down and inserted in some bag type container could, to give them as much oxygen as possible and treated by medical staff completely covered up with only a couple of eyes visible behind layers of protective uh, plastic and glasses uh, shocked all of us. Uh, cynically, 
however, uh, one would have to acknowledge that this is also the paradigm of death in our Western neoliberal world. As social scientists and philosophers, starting with Philippe Ariès in his classical The Hour of Our Death, already indicated in the 80s and, and 70s and 80s, our westernized world is actively attempting to banish death, starting with the relegation of the elderly into islands that are exclusively for them, the dying in the hospitals, and the dead, well, the dead in a very Christian way, left to the dead in the cemeteries that are far, far, far away from the cities that we live in. Uh, I believe that today's situation, however, shows that this attempt to banish death and all that is related to it can also backfire seriously, however. In fact, today's response shows that people need and also want to have others present in the final moments of their own life and also that they feel the need to be present in the final moments of the lives of their loved ones. But, and this is probably uh, more than this is more than anything else, the horror we feel when faced with endless lines of nameless coffins. It reveals the importance also of our need to mourn. So we have one more human sentiment here that needs to be discussed in this context. That, that resonates with me quite deeply. And it's, I think, actually one of the reasons that I say that for me, hope isn't necessarily a, a matter of positive emotion. I don't, I don't think of it as necessarily um, a, a positive feeling. I think hope has this kind of negativity, in part because I think the kind of resilience that I describe in terms of hope is necessary to mourn in response to the horrors that you're describing. I think, uh, I think in addition to the images of lines of bodies, I think of a sort of a different kind of, of absence and a different cause for mourning, which is the images that have been circulating of famous sites around the world that are now totally empty places that are usually full of of people and full of life, like Times Square in New York, or Las Ramblas in Barcelona, Bangkok, Berlin, Rome, New Delhi. These places are now empty in a way that's quite eerie. And for me, this is one of the clearest signs that what we knew to be normal is gone, and we have no idea whether it will return. So in this context, we've really lost something. We've all lost something. Some people have lost loved ones, which is a, it's a terrible tragedy. But I think all of us have lost a, a sense of what's familiar and the sort of comforting regularity that we were used to. And I think for that reason, all of us need to engage in this work of mourning that you're describing. Um, I think one of the reasons that acknowledging this pain is so important is that uh, it has this political dimension. So some theorists argue that in the system of market capitalism, the characteristic situation that a worker is placed in is precarity, which is to say they're vulnerable to sudden shocks of unemployment or uh, health emergency or other kinds of crisis. So people are sort of, uh, especially the most vulnerable, are placed in this really unstable situation that's exhausting. There's a sense in which all of us are experiencing that now together because even those of us who are generally comfortable, those of us who come from wealthy industrialized nations, those of us who are well-employed in those nations, even, even those of us who are in that kind of situation are now conscious of our vulnerability in a new way because this uh, sense of familiarity has been disrupted so suddenly. 
At the same time, I think it's really important to remember that the the suffering that will happen in, in this crisis is not distributed equally. So even though it's leveling in a sense, in, a, in maybe a much more important sense, the suffering is really asymmetrical. So I can think of myself, I, as a university employee, I have the freedom to work from home. And that means that I'm insulated from the danger of infection. I, my employment will continue even if the economy is shut down for some time. Many workers, workers in hospitals, workers in uh, grocery stores, delivery people, they don't have the luxury to work from home. And that means that they're more exposed to infection and it also seems like m many of the industries that will be affected most directly financially uh, are um, many of the employees in those industries are already disadvantaged. So the coverage that I've seen suggests the crisis is likely to intensify existing inequalities distributed by uh, race and economics. And I think that is uh, as, a, as a really terrible prospect, but in order to face it squarely in order to acknowledge the, um, the difficulty of the situation that we're in, I think requires this discipline of hope, this um, sort of honest vulnerability and a resilience in the face of it. So as I, as I said earlier, I think some politicians have displayed an, optimist, an optimism that's quite dangerous. I think the better thing to do, the better thing politically, and especially the better thing that will allow us to um, to care for those who are most vulnerable in this situation is to acknowledge the pain that we're feeling, to acknowledge the need for mourning, and to, to, to squarely face the fact that the pain is going to be deep, but we need to try to address it as best we can, rather than pretending that things are better than they are. Returning uh, once again to uh, a hopefully more positive uh, aspect of hope, and in conclusion, do you think we will learn something from this experience? I, I mean, philosophically speaking, none of us obviously can see into the future, but we can perform that by now famous Foucaultian operation of reading through the past to better understand our present. Um, I mean, a couple of years ago, I studied the, the history of the concept of limbo and its implications. And I find some highly surprising coincidences between the idea or between that idea of limbo and our present situation in this pandemic. And this is especially regarding the manner in which uh, decisions were and are being taken by those in charge. And so I have enormous doubts regarding the outcome of this peculiar situation. I know that you are working on a somewhat similar project. So what are your uh, preliminary or your ideas concerning this possible outcome and this possible uh, learning something from this experience? I think the, the, you're right that there's a lot of there a lot of connections between your work on limbo and the, the work that I've been doing. I remember um, when you wrote me uh, when the book about limbo came out. I I uh, benefited from from reading the book and um, and I think I'm working through similar problems. So as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, my second book is on the topic of miracles, and it's related to this idea that you mentioned in our first conversation uh, from Carl Schmidt linking political sovereignty to the theological concept of the miracle. So one of the things I realized when I went back and revisited the early modern critique of miracles and people like David Hume and others 
I found that it's predicated on a confidence that things will continue as they've been. So there's this idea that to believe that something unprecedented could happen uh, is irrational, according to Hume. And in Hume, it's linked quite explicitly with the marginalization of particular kinds of people. Hume refers dismissively to um, barbarian people who still believe in miracles. So in my reading, this confidence in one's prior experience, one's confidence that one's prior experience predicts the future, and the exclusion of people that are unlike oneself go together in an important respect. And I think this ethos, there's a sort of basic ethical disposition that underline, underlies this ostensibly rational argument. I think this ethos reflects a desire for prediction and control that's really characteristic of modernity in a certain respect. And uh, since you referred to Foucault, I'll simply mention that I think this is at the heart of the regime of power that Foucault called biopolitics in his work in the, in the 70s. I think that the shock that we're living through shows that that view of the world is really limited. This experience that I've described where what we knew as normal is suddenly, suddenly shattered, suddenly lost. Everything has become strange all of a sudden. I think this is one of the reasons that pre-modern miracle stories have something to teach us now, even though they are alien from the way that many of us think, and even though many of us might not have religious commitments of our own. I think these miracle stories uh, from medieval Christian thought in particular, I think they articulate an alternative ethos, so rather than one that emphasizes the uh, the sort of predictive confidence of calculative rationality. I think this alternative ethos is open to unimagined possibilities and has this sense that anything can actually happen. I think that acknowledging the, this, the possibility of eruptive events of this kind is really important. As I mentioned in relation to Schmidt in our first conversation, I think this extra rational dimension of politics is dangerous, but it also opens this the possibility that we can imagine a more just world. Uh, so going back to uh, Foucault's analysis of biopolitics, I think he articulated the way in which in, in the world that we know, economic systems have such power that it can be difficult to imagine anything different. And the, the powers Foucault described isn't, isn't the sort of uh, dominative power that is easier to identify and resist with a, with a sovereign who's oppressing a people with a disciplinary regime that's uh, trying to mold individuals in a quite direct way. Um, it, it can be easier to say, this is where the power is, this is what needs to change. But in this economic system of biopolitics, it, it uses our very will, our very freedom as its, as its tool of operation. It, it sort of infects our choices. So when we're at the grocery store deciding what type of toothpaste to, to buy, uh, our, our choice is already influenced by the system that we're inhabiting, um, not to mention the, the choice to brush our teeth in the first place. So one of the reasons why I think this sort of eruptive imagination that I find in these ancient miracle stories is so important is that this uh, the miraculous isn't limited by what presently seems possible. And I think that opens the possibility 
points to a politics that uh, in similar fashion doesn't take for granted that the way things have been is the way they'll continue to be. So to return to the central topic of our conversation, I think the crisis that we're living through is tremendously difficult. And I'm uh, quite worried as you are, I think that the outcome will be quite corrosive. But my own risky hope is that if we face this challenge together, we might, we might find that it's an opportunity to discover forms of social solidarity that can enrich our common life in time to come. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with what you said. We should stop thinking about Tina, about there is no alternative. There are alternatives. And to end with the positive note with which you ended in our first talk, it needs some creative and the imaginative imagination to think this through. And, and although it's difficult, that there are options. So, David, thank you so much for being uh, with us here at PICT. And uh, I hope that this time of, of, of lockdown gives you enough of energy to write your book on the miracle very quickly so that we can bring you to Paris to introduce it to our listeners. So thank you again, David, for being with us. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us, and we hope to uh, hear you soon or listening to us again on Picked Voices. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Christoph.